You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Stella. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Um, today, we're, we're kind of opening something up. We're going behind the curtain. Yes. And so, um, this is something I've wanted to do almost since I first become a therapist, because people I often think, like, what goes on in the therapist's office? What goes on in there? And uh, I often say, like, you know, you, you think we're the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, like, with you know, doing all sorts, when actually it's, it's, I think it's very warm and it's very um, understanding. There's a lot of, there's a real, I feel, especially I love doing face-to-face, you know, in-person therapy. And there's a real warmth in the room and there's a real authenticity in the room that I, I thrive from. But I don't think much magic is going on. I don't think, I'm not, I'm not like, we're not standing on one foot and closing her eyes and clapping three times <laughs> to get rid of Oh, symptoms. wait, you don't start your therapy sessions that way? <laughs> no, but I remember a friend of mine, when he found out that I, I had candles all over the place, he was like, you don't have candles. And I was like, I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so today's session is about what is the work the therapist does when mm-hmm. somebody comes in with gender-related gender ch- challenges. Yeah. And we thought this would be good for... Parents who want to know what's going on, for people who might have gender concerns themselves, and also for therapists who might be, we're getting so much contact from therapists who are mm-hmm. watching and listening to us, that um, they might be interested in our work. Mm-hmm. I think we've done a good job so far of kind of explaining our thoughts on gender and gender identity and why we're skeptical of the affirmation model. But I don't know if our audience really gets, OK, well, how do you do that? What happens in therapy? And so we hope that this will be kind of a series of multiple episodes where we let people peek behind the curtain, I guess. And um, there are special you know, logistical issues that do come up around gender. And I think listeners will be surprised that we work with this issue in a very kind of basic way that you might work with lots of other issues that come to you in therapy. So you've talked a lot about de-exceptionalizing gender dysphoria, Stella, and I think giving listeners a chance to hear how we work with clients will kind of ground that in some examples. Um, yeah, I think in many ways we kind of have accepted that our the moniker that seems to be put on the type of therapy we might do with people who have gender issues would be gender exploratory therapy seems to be the, the most common phrase. And I'm perfectly happy with that because I'm certainly exploratory. Um, but I think more than anything, I think the work that um, I do with clients is similar to always the work I do with clients. I don't see a huge difference between any difference, really, between how I would work. The psychoeducation might be different. The information might be different. But the actual relationship, the client-to-therapist relationship is incredibly similar, no matter whether I'm working with somebody who's 48 or somebody who's who's mm-hmm. 14. 
it's for me uh, the emphasis is on the relationship. But one question I've always meant to ask you, and we have I haven't got around to asking you is. I know in something like 2015 or 2016, you, I think, did you leave a school or something that you were a counsellor? And then you said, right, I'm going to set up and I'm going to work just with gender. I don't know that story. And I presume most of the listeners don't. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you know, my, I started following the gender issue while I was working at this school. I mean, I was like online 24-7 outside of work, which of course isn't 24-7, um, but I was really, really fascinated by it. And I started hearing kids in our Gay Straight Alliance club that I started talking about gender identity at school. So in these kind of extracurriculars. And so I actually worked with a young lady at the school who I had known for a couple of years. She was in, I think, ninth grade at the time or maybe eighth grade. And for years that I worked with her, I suspected she was on the autism spectrum. She didn't have a diagnosis and she had all kinds of kind of interesting experiences. She was quite socially awkward, but she had one really close friend who was actually diagnosed on the spectrum and she never really raised issues around gender. She was kind of gender non-conforming insofar as like she was not concerned about appearance at all or looking, you know, pretty. And she was much more into illustration and anime and gaming. But anyway, at some point, maybe in eighth or ninth grade, she started saying things like, you know, I don't know if I'm a girl anymore. And she would be talking and people referred her to come talk to me because they knew I was interested in, you know, LGBT issues. And anyway, long story short, she she had all of this jargon from Tumblr and all of these kind of like trans inclusive chat rooms and stuff. And she was just rattling off all this language. And she started talking about, you know, not wanting to be called her name anymore and talked about wanting to find a binder. And so I just tried to hold it very carefully. And what I did was I said, you know, that's definitely an interesting idea, but ultimately I think you're perfect just the way you are. And I told her, I love the fact that you like care a lot more about drawing than you do about dresses. I think it makes you really unique. And she was always so excited when I would kind of reflect back her positive qualities without making it about gender. And so anyway, we talked about it on and off for several months and then she was doing better at you know, in her classes. So she wasn't being referred to my office so much anymore. And I caught up with her, I think, towards the end of that year, right before summer. And I said, hey, just wanted to check on you, see how you're doing. She said, oh, you know, remember that thing we used to talk about a lot? And I said, do you mean gender? And she said, yeah, I actually don't have a problem with that anymore. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. What happened? And she said, you know, I think I was just really lonely and I was trying to make friends online. And I was like, whoa, that's insightful, you know? So after having kind of seen the trajectory for this kid, I realized it's very possible that all these other kids questioning their gender are very similar to her. And yet if you use the affirmative model, she would have been long down the road of binding, cutting her hair, changing her name, being referred to as a boy. So I thought, okay, this is just basic adolescent identity exploration therapy we need to we need to do something so so anyway i left i left my school i mean i had been considering uh, what sort of year was that around 2014 2016 2016 i started my practice so i finished out that school year and then the next year i was full-time 
And since then, you know, going into private practice, I had all of these expectations of what therapy would look like. And I was totally wrong. This particular client, we had a two year relationship before the gender thing came up. So we had excellent rapport and she was very, very um, close with me. And so it was much more um, feasible to help get her thinking about things in a new way. I thought, okay, well, if all clients are this easy to help, then this is going to be a piece of cake. And oh my goodness, was I wrong? <laughs> a piece <laughs> so of cake. It is not. <laughs> it is not a piece of cake. So I've learned a lot along the way, um, and my clients have taught me a lot. So at this point, you know, there are some specific issues that come up around gender that I figured out how to work with in this kind of careful way. And just before we move forward, you know, you mentioned gender exploratory. I want to first say that this term was first used by a therapist called Anastasis Spiliadis, and he has an excellent paper called uh, Towards a Gender Exploratory Model slowing things down, opening things up, and exploring identity development. And he's a colleague of ours, and he's written about his gender exploratory model, which is brilliant. And I want to just get your thoughts on this. Sometimes we are called gender critical therapists. And I just want to take a moment to explain why, at least for me, that doesn't feel like the correct label. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What do you think? I don't like the name gender critical. It certainly doesn't apply to me. Um, I think gender critical is a feminist viewpoint. And I think uh, feminists are more than more than entitled to have their feminist viewpoint. And it's it's I know it's academical, academically viewed, viewing the word critical and they uh, they analyze as such gender and the, the construct of gender in society, and they t- they make a critique on it and how it might impose certain roles upon us, and that's perfectly fine. That's what feminism should be doing, but I think for therapy, I don't think it suits. I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think I don't identify with it at all because I I'm not taking an academically critical eye on on gender. I just am not and I, I don't bring that into my, my office or my clinic. And what I am is I'm curious and I'm compassionate and I'm exploratory and trying to find out the person and where they're at. And so if you want to call it gender exploratory, yeah, that would suit me better. But I'm just effectively client exploratory. You know, I'm just, I'm exploratory on every level with every person because if somebody comes into me with, you know, that they want to leave their marriage. And then six weeks later, they're talking about their alcohol problem. I'm not surprised. Like, I, mm-hmm. I'm used to mm-hmm. the swings of, of therapy. That just because they're coming in with this doesn't mean that that's what they're going to end up talking about. There can be generally there. Sometimes they're, they're testing you with issue A mm-hmm. to see if they have enough trust in you to really present the real issue, which is issue yeah. B, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my view of gender critical. What's, what is yours? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm very, I think as a, just as an individual, I've gone through lots of iterations of trying to understand the world. And sometimes I have taken more of a political lens and I'm not at that place anymore in my life. But what I've realized is that therapy has to be a place where you don't inject too many political ideas. I mean, that's part of the reason why I have a problem with you know, um, 
the way certain therapy modalities focus on marginalized identities because it's highly political and it takes the ability away from the therapist and the client, A, to connect in an authentic way, and B, to look at their individual experience, um, including their personal life history, their personality traits, their proclivities. And so I try to avoid political arguments, and especially because gender identity, when kids are struggling with it, sometimes, not always, but sometimes it comes along with a very, very strong political leaning. And so if you start to get into political debates with your therapy clients, good luck, because there goes the therapeutic relationship. And that's not to say you can never offer challenges to your clients, but if you approach therapy from a highly feminist, highly political lens, you're going to have to sacrifice the quality of the relationship and you're possibly blinding yourself to aspects of the client's experience that don't fit that narrative where you're going to view your client in a warped way. And so I just try my best to um, be very, very cautious about political angles to therapy. I've seen that. I agree with you. And I think politics is not where therapy is. If you follow me, they're in two different rooms. But I've seen it over the last year with COVID and the restrictions because people have very definite politics around their COVID and their Mm -hmm. understanding of COVID. And I've really noticed in my therapy, my my politics around COVID are not the place for it. It's therapy is therapy. You know what I mean? And so you get to the person. And so, you know, that lovely line from Rumi, you know, beyond right doing and wrong doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. And I love that. Mm, I love that. Yeah. So so let's maybe start then with there are specific logistical, I guess, challenges that come with the type of therapy we do. So I'll outline a couple and you tell me if there's additional ones I'm, okay. I'm missing. So one is that sometimes the family has kind of discovered their child's trans identity and either the parents are very apprehensive and uneasy and they're like okay we're going to quickly quickly find a therapist let's just find a therapist to fix you to to fix you or just sometimes they're more kind of gentle with the way they frame it but a lot of times it's like what the heck is going on you need a therapist so there's a bit of a pathologization that already exists at the start and sometimes there's been conflict around the gender And so the child might perceive the therapist as an extension of mom and dad's perspective. I'll just kind of pause there and just see, do you find that to be the case? Yes, I do. And then I think it's my job, and it's very much my job in the initial stages, the walk-in, first session, I have to be about myself, and they have to kind of realize that I'm, for them, this is their Mm -hmm. space with me. And it's not, I'm not kind of, mommy and daddy's kind of spokesperson. That's right. Yeah. And I think it's very important that there is a separation between the, the, the parents, the client and the therapist. They're, they're all three different roles and they, they, they need to, their boundaries need to be there for that. And I can almost see visibly when the, when the especially if it's an adolescent client, because that's what we're really talking about here. And they can, they visibly relax when the, their shoulders go down, they breathe, they're kind of like, okay, no, the, this this therapist in front of me is actually just trying to connect with me 
and not yeah. trying to push in what mommy and daddy want. That's There's a defensiveness true. at the beginning and it's it's all about, I think, rapport building and it's relationship establishing in the those first sessions because they're they're figuring you out, especially if they've been to a few therapists before. They're figuring you out and they're trying to say, Can I trust you? Mm-hmm. And um our job, I think, well certainly my job is to kind of say, well, this is how I work. And I believe you can trust me because I certainly want the best for you, whatever that best is. Yeah. And that's my my job to convey that. Mm-hmm. And I think a very concrete thing that sometimes operates like a litmus test for both the parent and the child is like, what are you going to do about names and pronouns? And for me, because I've been very vocal about my perspective on childhood transition, I think most parents who contact me kind of implicitly trust my approach. But I know that they sometimes will interview therapists. And one of the questions is, are you going to use their preferred name? Are you going to use their preferred pronouns? And this can be really tricky because, of course, you never want to start a therapy relationship off a relationship off in a power struggle. No. So you can't make this the kind of hill you're willing to die on. And on the other hand, you do want to leave space for this exploratory angle. So, I mean, for for therapists listening, here's a kind of trick that I've come up with that's been really helpful. Um, First of all, pragmatically in therapy, you almost never need to use pronouns because you're speaking with the individual. Okay. And if I'm in a conversation with both the teenager and the parent, I still direct the conversation at the teenager. So for example, if the parent says, so how is Jessica doing in therapy? I might say, you know what, we're doing great. So far this week, what we focused on is like body image and what do you think? It's been going okay, right? And I'll refer to the teen. And it's taken a little bit of practice to get that down. But that way I'm never putting either the parent or the teenager in a position of conflict with one another. Um, And I have asked clients, like when I first meet them, I say, you know, it's a bit of a tradition in my practice that we use everyone's last name. Would it be okay if I just called you your last name? And I, I remember you said in Ireland that would be quite odd. Um, But in America, you know, anybody who's been on a sports team or sometimes at school, people use their last names. So in my case, you know, someone would call me Ayad, which it's kind of endearing. It's a little bit buddy buddy. So that has a warmth to it as well. And if a kid has like an incredibly long last name, maybe just the first initial of the last name or something like that. So this is a nice way of a creating a special way of relating to each other that isn't so hyper fixated on use my pronouns, don't use the pronouns. Um, And it just leaves that kind of space for, you know, seeing where things go that doesn't lock the kid into their birth identity or their new gender identity. Um, That's really helpful. I think it's really interesting and it's a really innovative approach. I think it's brilliant, if I'm honest, your approach. I think that it's important if pronouns and names come up that it's important not to let it become a fixation within therapy, not to let it become an obstacle to therapy, and to call it out if it is becoming a fixation or an obstacle. It's like, wow, this is getting a lot of time. And I'll basically call anybody whatever they want me to call them, but I, I, it doesn't come up. 
like I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm called, I, hi, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not actually using their name. I, I don't know how often I use yours a little bit, maybe because we're talking to the listeners who aren't here. I'd probably use it a little bit more often than if you were just straight in front of me and we were just talking. So I, I refuse to let pronouns or, or nouns to become an obstacle to therapy or to become a fixation. And I would discuss that in detail in the beginning sessions about how it's very important that everything remains fluid when we're in a process and that if anything becomes a fixation, I'm very interested to know why the fixation, what's behind mm. the fixation, what's driving the fixation. And is there a need for, for, for let's say, a client to, to kind of feel that they're in control of the way I think of them? And where is that going and where, what's driving that? And could we give some space to that? So if it comes up, oh, my God, we go so into it that there isn't one part of the, the concept we haven't thought about, if you follow me. And um, at still and all, I, I refuse to be rigid. I think rigidity is my, is my enemy here and flexibility is everything. And I very much preface everything because I've got a, a slightly informal well quite an informal attitude in life that like you know I don't believe in making a mistake is as a as a heart-wrenching event I, I reject it you know we make mistakes and that's life and if I've got a good relationship and I have thankfully with with clients they can handle me making mistakes and, and there's always an opportunity for a repair you know ref- yeah the magic is in the repair that's right yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do think now you've lifted it, I think parents are 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 deciding upon therapists about whether they use the pronouns or the names or not. And I don't think that's a good I don't think it's a good rule of thumb, but I can very much understand why it's become a rule of thumb. And I think the most important thing to me is rigidity and flexibility and you know, a kind of a, a certain level of of the the therapist in control of the session as opposed to the tail is wagging the dog. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason why, and you and I actually made a video about this on my YouTube channel, part of the reason why parents get really fixated on these details is because many times they approach a therapist who says, of course I'm going to take it slow, of course we're going to explore. And what ends up happening is the therapist is not just affirming the identity, but actively pushing transition as the solution. So they have completely missed the metaphor here and the depth. And so I understand why parents see that as a kind of litmus test. Um, And in in fairness to parents, some parents have had some, well, many parents, I have to say, have had some frightening and chilling experiences with therapists who have not treated the family unit well, who have not treated the, the, the questioning adolescent well and who foreclosed and who have kind of encouraged and sped up processes that should have been given more thought. So I can see why the, the parents are often very, um, oh, I won't say paranoid, but suspicious of, well, what is your system? If I was a parent and if I was in their position, oh my God, I would grill the therapist. I know I would. I think this is a good segue to kind of the next point that I think we want to cover, which is how do we include the family and the parents in our therapeutic process? Because 
I don't know if it's like this in Ireland, but here in the U.S., <clears throat> of course, because when you work with adolescents, the adolescent is your primary client, and there is confidentiality there. So some therapists will say, no, I will not talk to the parents at all. I mean, they have no communication whatsoever with the parents. And of course, there's different iterations of this um, in terms of how involved the family is. Some people say, I only work with the family, you know, because at this age, parents are really important. So I kind of take... Um, Again, I always take a middle-of-the-line approach, I suppose, and I, I talk with parents on my caseload every six weeks or so, and the child knows from the very, very first intake appointment that this is my process. And what, what I talk with parents about are general themes. I try not to share details, um, but I also, as I share with my clients, I also use those parent calls as an opportunity to offer kind of support and feedback to the parents if I think something important is happening in the family dynamic and maybe the parent needs to back off or maybe the parent needs to lean in with more support or maybe the parent needs to try listening more empathically. You know, I can advise the parents without details, you know, based on what we've been discussing in therapy, I think it would be really valuable if you did this or this or this. And so oftentimes kids are more than happy for me to speak with their parents because they see me as kind of a bridge and someone who's a little bit of their ally, not to use that very loaded term, right? But they do see me as someone who's kind of got their back. Yeah, I do as well. I speak with the parents. We're quite similar in lots of ways, you and I, although different personalities, but in our work. Um, I speak with the parents because I think it would be cold and I think it would be so disempowering for the parents not to. And I don't think that's fair. I, I'm quite strong on the authority of the parent and that the parents have been de-skilled and kind of unmanned by by a lot of therapeutic processes. And I don't think that that's good. I, I do. I ask permission from the from the adolescent I'm working with. And I also um I'm also perceived as a bridge. I found that every adolescent I've worked with has been into it. Even even sometimes, like uh, that, that they've felt that uh, the, the the therapist. I know quite a few parents have said to me, "Oh my God, you know, I'd be saying to the kid like for seven years something, and then suddenly they'll turn around and say Stella says." <laughs> <laughs> actually really annoying for the parent here. They're like, really? Oh, does she? Oh, yeah. The oracle says it. And uh, I, I warned the parents that that might happen and not to take it to heart too much. But yeah, I think it's really important. One thing I do think that more and more as I get into um, gender, that there could, be, there could be a real value in, let's say, having a scenario where I would see I would see the, the, the client and the parent would also go to therapy and there'd be a bit of interaction between the therapists. I think uh, I think family therapy is a fabulous idea. I'm not a family therapist, but I do think it's a great idea. But as I get into it, I think more and more there's a disconnect. There's a there's a kind of a child in a bedroom with a door shut and there's a, a parent downstairs going, I don't know. I do not know how to get get into their head or to communicate. And so I think, and I also think further than that, that parents could do with psychoeducation. That, you know, it, there could there'd be real merit for maybe myself and yourself or 
somebody doing a course in psychoeducation just for the parents. There's an awful lot of information around gender. It's very daunting. And some parents, they actually don't want to know. They're like, they, they're not that interested. I've heard you say it before. They're not that. They're just like, kind of, this is too big. You, you deal with that therapist because I, I can't. And I think, no, you kind of have to lean into this. You kind of have to know the jargon, learn it, know the Tumblr from the Discord and the Snapchat and the anime and the deviant art. And you've got to, and there's where the psychoeducation, there's a lot, not just about emotionally connecting with, with, with the child, but also about this is the world they're swimming in. You, you need to know the waters they're in because you'll never understand them if you don't. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the context is so important. Otherwise, you might think, my child just invented this totally out of the blue. Where was this dormant in their body all this time? I had no idea. I must be a bad parent for not noticing. I mean, there's so many kind of implications if you don't understand where this is coming from. Um, and I mean, kind of the other side of that coin, I do these parent consults every so often, and I often find myself providing psychoeducation around parenting styles. So we'll, we'll probably cover this in another episode, but I think parents either are, um, you know, too lax and they don't trust their own ability at all to support their kid. And so they end up saying, well, I'm just going to completely let the child guide me on what to do because I feel so ill-equipped. Or parents who are kind of in um, like a squat team mode where they just <laughs> barge into the bedroom, locking down computers, locking down <laughs> everything. <laughs> they become really the other side. So I, I often find myself kind of saying, okay, well, you do need to trust the ability that you have as their parent to help set the pace here. Because if you have a 13-year-old, the 13-year-old shouldn't be setting the pace. The poor kid is drowning in confusing materials they don't really know exactly what they need at 13 and on the other hand you have to make room for the fact that the child is in their own process so this becomes like a big thing that I end up talking about with parents in consultation not necessarily just about gender yeah and I try to talk to parents a little bit because I find about about like trying to encourage them to 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 learn the world because I find some parents are intimidated by the world and they're intimidated by their child's intelligence. And there's a, a kind of a, a almost bowing down to their, their, their future tech giants. And I, I don't dare intrude upon this extraordinary curve, glorious curve of knowledge that they're on. And I, I haven't a notion what they're talking about half the time. And I just blink because yeah, I yeah. think, wow. And I'm like, you know, I remember, you know, like certain kids saying something to a parent and it sounded so fabulous and almost grandiose, like, you know what I mean? Because let's say she's 11 or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, if you knew the world, actually, you wouldn't find that. So that's just a very common uh, question in that world. Mm -hmm. But outside that world, it can sound like well, these people are, are geniuses and they're, they really know their stuff and they're, they're so profound and I'm like, yeah, it's actually quite common. Yeah, it's just a meme they saw yeah. a bunch of times. And I mean, it's not to be dismissive because, you know, we all get our information from things we see over and over. But but it is important for parents to kind of understand the context of where these ideas come from. And again, you know, to go back to the therapy piece, we have to hold all this metaphorically, right? So just because your child has repeated a phrase that they've heard over and over 
And maybe you then you can say, okay, I don't take it literally now. It doesn't mean that you dismiss the entire enterprise of what the child is expressing. And I mean, I think this kind of, this is helpful for us to talk about the next point, which is, you know, when you do start building a relationship with a client, a teenage client or a young adult or an adolescent, especially teenagers, how do you build the trust? Because again, you said there's sometimes a bit of a defensiveness. And I noticed that some some young people are incredible candidates for therapy and that they come and they yeah. want to tell you everything and they're like <laughs> they them. have a list you know <laughs> written down of all the stuff to tell you and those are just such a pleasure to work with <laughs> and then sometimes there's a client that you find yourself really ripping your hair out trying to think of every you know magic <laughs> combination of words to get this kid to open up and it's so hard so I mean, building the rapport at the beginning, it, it's the setting the tone of therapy, and it's so, so, so important. So with the gender kids specifically, do you have any kind of reflections you can share on how you build that initial re- relationship? I try to find out where they're coming from, what they were like as a kid, what was the arc, when were they happy, when were they not, was there any blocks any events like when they were eight or ten or twelve you know just any kind of events but I don't go straight there first of all I go straight into what's going on with you right now right here yeah. in these few months you know what I mean what you know but after we've kind of established where where the child is at right now I might go back to and did, is this reminiscent is there any patterns there I'm always interested in mm. patterns and do you see any patterns from what were you like when you were 10 and what were you like when you were six because I like to get the whole person of, of them and they generally like reflecting on that because they haven't often given themselves the perspective of the whole oh well actually I changed a lot and this is when I changed a lot so that can be really interesting and easy to kind of navigate especially if they're communicative by nature um, and then I would very much be a, a lot of focus on their relationships in life, their friendships, their their ex friendships, their friendship problems, their their maybe their relationships with their parents and their siblings. Sibling can come in quite a lot at that age, and I that would be the kind of the crux of where I'm building their relationship. That's where I am in the, in, in the initial stages. I'm all about that. And my feeling is if they keep on trying to bring it back to, you know, gender, let's say, for example, or whatever else, like if they, if, you know, they were fixated on something else. My job is to make sure that they they um, they don't simplify their narrative, that they complexify their narrative and they, they learn the, all the many different colors they have to their person. I know you mm-hmm. said before, you're not just a walking gender identity like there's more to you do you do much more in that initial and before I say that I really would like to emphasize and I'm sure you will lead the way on this is this is a slow process this therapy when it's when it's gender questioning goes on for a long time this is not a fast 12 week scenario Ever, as far as I can see. It is slow with a capital S. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, sometimes parents will say, you know, like parents who I don't necessarily work with, but consult with, you know, my therapist has been working with my kid for two months and nothing has changed yet. Is that normal? And I'm like, 
Oh yeah, buckle up my friends because this is a long road and you just have to give it time to unfold. It's really a slow process. I, I get a lot of emails from a lot of emails from parents uh, especially who are looking for help. And I, I, I as far as I can see, there's a severe shortage of therapists who are who are informed on on issues in a in a kind of depth perspective around gender. And so I, I kind of emphasize this is this is going to be long, long, you know, get into the marathon here, take everything slow, lean in, get to know them. You don't need to get a therapist this week. No. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, to caveat our entire episode, I often say, you know, you should not feel as though this is so over your head that you can't support your child. I mean, what what happens with me, because I have this really long, well, my waiting list is closed. And so what will happen is that I'll consult with a family over the phone, just the parents. And, you know, over the years, I'll touch base with them. And I have met so many families who have supported their children through this without necessarily having the help of a therapist, oh. just by kind of like leaning in and staying connected and you know, helping their child just get on with life. And sometimes their gender identity kind of evolves into something a little more flexible, you know, like maybe the child later will identify as non-binary, for example, and not be interested in medical intervention. That's a great direction to go because you're preserving the health of the child. And sometimes kids desist altogether. So, I mean, we, we say all this because we want to give listeners an idea of what we actually do in therapy. And it's so important for parents who are desperately looking for a therapist to know therapy is not the only way to help your child take a more exploratory approach to this gender thing. It's not the only way. Um, You said um, about the initial stages. Is there anything else you would include Mm -hmm. in the initial stages? Well, I mean, I I very much like you make it really clear to the child that... um, You know, of course, I've heard your parents' perspective on everything that's going on. But at the end of the day, I'm your therapist, not their therapist. So why don't you tell me what is your side of the story here? And um, I, I also try in the initial stages to see where I have room to kind of get connected. As I said, some kids are really open and wanting to talk, but sometimes they're really shut down. And so I think of it kind of like playing the the game Jenga, you know, that game of blocks where there's three and three. And it's like you tap, you know, you tap (laughs) on the block. And if there's a block that's really stuck, you're not going to yank it out because the whole tower is going to fall. But if there's a block that has some wiggle room, you kind of move that. So it might be like, the kids completely shut down and stoic, except when they're talking about their artwork, you know, oh, yeah. and then, oh, your artwork. And then you really try to build a relationship on that. Or, you know, maybe they're having kind of a complicated friendship issue. And that's the most pressing thing. Meanwhile, the parents think they're rushing towards top surgery. And the kid's like, look, I'm not worried about that. My friend Janet's pissing me off. And yes. so, you know, whatever the presenting problem is for the client, that becomes maybe our focus initially. And certainly I'm not sitting in there talking gender, gender, gender to the client. No. It's just that's not what's happening. I'm getting to know the client in their many, many different ways. And I think a lot of um, parents and even therapists seem to think that we're talking gender the whole time. I'm certainly not waving any science studies in their face. No. Let's Ever. talk about that for yeah. a second. Because 
Parents often think that they need a therapist to explain the risks of transition to them. And I'm not saying there never comes a time and a place for that. Maybe in future episodes, we can talk about how do we actually broach that subject. But let's talk about teenagers and medical risks. What what do you think here? I think that it couldn't be less of a good topic to bring up to a teenager. I remember being a teenager. I seem to have a gift of remembering what it was like when it was 10. Remember what I just seem to. Because you work with teens and you have you have children who are entering yeah, their teenage years. Yeah. But some people don't remember it at all. I remember it exactly. Mm. Like I, there is not, it just doesn't interest them. Oh, you could have broken bones or heart disease. It, I, you know, you just laugh at it you, when you were a kid. You laughed at the idea of cancer and bone density and yeah, you, you know, it doesn't it doesn't the um, the feeling of, you know, um, infallibility of a teenager. They really think like I'm bulletproof. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? In that in that kind of future old people's illnesses, like it's just old people's illnesses is not going to penetrate. And that's how they file it in their brain. You know, yeah, that's for, for sure. people who are 25. I'm 15. <laughs> And they're they're thinking, you know, well, I'm in so much distress now. How yeah. can I fix this now? And you know, before we got on, I mean, I was saying, do you remember the Tide Pod challenge, which which was like a bunch of teenagers in America decided to eat like laundry detergent as a challenge, and of course, it was insanely irresponsible. But you know, that's the the, the teenage mind for for many teens, not everyone, because I think just as a general uh, statement. Most of the kids I work with are highly cautious kids. They are not risk takers. So there may be not the kid kind of running around with uh, that sense of infallibility. They feel quite fallible almost all the time. And I think they're, they're really trying to escape that. But to your point, yeah, talking to a 15-year-old about a you know 3% bone density loss or something. I mean, they just don't care. They don't care at all. They don't even understand why you're telling them that. And not only that, if you look at brain science and brain formation, you'll realize that the reward center in the teenager's brain is literally more active than the, the consequences set. Now, obviously, a neuroscientist would be writhing in agony at my basic analysis, but you know the, 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 there is a there is a truth in it, and that they're literally the reward center is like a siren, and they're like, "I want it now, I want it now." But you're right; they are distinctly more cautious than than let's say I wouldn't be the most cautious person in the world, and they're distinctly more cautious than I ever am, mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. often impressed by their their caution. That they, they listen to their parents when their parents worry about them about things. That they go, yeah, you know, my parents said this. And I can remember I would have just been just mocking it. They they take it quite seriously. Exactly. Yeah, they yeah. do. They're serious kids who are, are compliant generally and interested in the adult's input. But only if it's going to be gentle and and kind of emotionally congruent with them. They don't do like being um, being hassled or harassed or heckled almost. That doesn't that they're, they're, that makes them very antsy. It's, it's yeah, not good I, I think any kid you know doesn't want to be harassed in that way. And I mean, we use that term kind of loosely. But to co- go back to your question earlier, I mean, 
this is often one of the ways in which I end up building rapport with the, the teenager, because sometimes if they're very defensive and really resistant and they're nervous that I might be an extension of mom and dad, by indicating to them that I'm trying to understand their perspective of the, the family conflict in play, that can be a very powerful way of opening up that communication. And I think you always have to be careful not to spill over into the other side in which it's you and the kid versus the parents. And that can be a fine line to walk. And sometimes with these gender dysphoric kids, you know, parents might imagine that we're in there talking about gender and clothes and hair and identity. And a lot of times we're just talking about mom and dad and how much they don't want to disappoint them or how frustrated they are that they don't feel they can make decisions for themselves. I mean, this is a, an adolescent period, which of course is totally wrapped up in the individuation process and trying to develop your own sense of morality aside from what mom and dad have encouraged. I mean, that's a, that goes across the board, not just gender. So all of those issues that any teenager is grappling with are laid on top of the gender issue. And, you know, to kind of go back to the work with families, it's really tricky because sometimes I have to encourage parents to stand in more of their authority and set more guidelines. I kind of think of it as bumper lanes for the child. But sometimes I'm telling parents, you really need to back off because when you are holding such a rigid stance around gender and you're constantly using opportunities to you know make the child feel like their rationale doesn't make sense or get into debates or kind of get you moments you're like oh I got you see that doesn't make sense you really ingrain that power struggle so it's very individual like what each family needs there's no formula and I don't know if that's your experience but I find Sometimes I'm telling parents to lean in with more authority, and sometimes I'm telling parents to back off. Yeah, and if there was a formula, it would be an anti-formula, which is don't get into your power <laughs> struggle or something. You, you know, yeah. you'd be wary, wary, wary of power struggles. I do think something you lifted there that I find again and again comes up, which is <clears throat> effectively, and this comes up not just with gender but with other issues, the parent wants you to go in and work with the client and basically take the issue away. And the issue might be OCD or gender or it could be, you know, anxiety or eating disorder. But leave everything else because they're very high achieving and we'd like to keep all that. <laughs> and it's like, actually, you know, if I if I unravel this piece of wool, the, 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 the high achieving is going to diminish because actually it's integral. It's actually really important. And the parents don't want that oh my god Stella like a thousand clients just ran through my mind sometimes these kids are so incredibly wound up that it is only their anxiety which is creating this high achieving perfectionistic kid and if you help the kid generally loosen up guess what? They may not stay up till four in the morning studying for that math test anymore, you know? So I'm just so, um, so relating to this point that you make that it could be an underlying, you know, twisted up perspective that's causing all of these problems. And so 
the entire way of being for this child may shift. And sometimes this shows up in the fact that like a child has been so, so compliant and so terrified of disagreeing with mom and dad that when we're making a progress in therapy, the kid might actually make a demand for the first time ever. Oh, yeah. This is a good one. And the cool. parents have to grapple with that, that, uh-oh, maybe part of my child's recovery process is finding a voice, and yeah, it happens to be around gender, and that's tough because this is a culturally salient issue right now. So voiceless kids are latching onto this to make demands and assert themselves, and it's very hard as a therapist to encourage that autonomy but say, but no, not about this. Never, never yeah. about this. Yeah, you can be autonomous when, when I want you to be. Exactly. <laughs> and know that they will be autonomous exactly where you don't want them to be. And it could be around clothes, it could be around names, it could be around pronouns or style. And this is where I've seen you speak about this. You know, wisdom is important, that you need to kind of go slowly there because actually you, it is, might be really important that you bow. If they have never looked for anything before, and this is the first time they've used their voice to ask, you know, reject it, you know, quickly at your peril. I've had, though, quite a few times that um, clients have been quite, not, not clients, clients' parents have been quite resistant over the exams and the high pressure where I've said, you know, this is tightly bound. This is integral. This is part of it. This is enmeshed with it. And they're like, no, no, no. They, they need to keep up the results. They need to keep, you know, it's the cost benefit analysis means we'd rather stop therapy than for them to, 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 to um, start to fail in their exams. And I, I think that's a really, that's where parents have to kind of look to themselves and perhaps be in therapy themselves that, that we've got to kind of loosen up about the, uh, the the success path of of the child. Where are you at with the clothes and the hair? I was saying earlier mm. that it sometimes feels quite Victorian. <laughs> I love that. Say more about that. I thought that was the perfect term. <laughs> sometimes it feels like the parent who is a liberal, educated, um, a progressive person has suddenly kind of fallen into kind of 1890 where, the, where the, the child should only wear floral skirts because she's so, she's become, the parent has become so disaffected and so reactionary around clothes and, and, and uh, hairstyles that they've, they've, they've suddenly fallen into another century. And then they yeah. kind of catch themselves and they realize, oh, my God, I've lost it. I'm literally trying to stop her from wearing a sweatshirt because I've lost all semblance of sanity about this issue. Understandable. Yeah, it's yeah for sure. Well, because it, the, the clothing doesn't just represent a child's genuine, you know, um, creativity. It re represents the attempt to become somebody else. And so it, it's very weighted. But you're right, I never realized I'd be talking about floral prints so much as a therapist. <laughs> but it does become really um, very, very challenging. You know, again, I think so much of this is individualized. You know, if you have a 12-year-old who literally just came up upon the gender identity thing uh, like last week or something and they're asking for haircuts and a new wardrobe I think it's absolutely within the parents purview to say we're going to pump the brakes on this we're going to just step aside we're not going to go down this road however I also think if you have a child who's been 
kind of exploring and questioning their gender for quite some time and it's been years and you're still fighting about haircuts, you know, something needs to shift there because again, it's that question of power struggle and it's hard, right? Because I'm thinking about you and I have both said, don't get into a power struggle. And yet I'm talking about parental authority and those can be hard to tease apart sometimes, you know, like, how do you know when you're in a power struggle versus using your parental authority? And, and You know, you're so right, because I'm being a bit disingenuous about the power struggles. You try and stay out of them. I'm in them all the time. I've got a 13 and an 11-year-old. And the power struggles are around tech. Yeah. And they're yeah. constant. And they're relentless. And it's constant, like, take, give me the phone. La. <laughs> You've had enough tech today. That No, no. <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's so much of that. Now, layer upon, you feel that the child has been radicalized by kind of um, influences online that you're really not happy with. You're going to be in big power struggles around tech. And you know what? It's appropriate because what they can access at, at 12 and at 13 is it's, it's really inappropriate what they can access. And it's very hard to get that genie back into the bottle. And so there's huge power struggles, for example, around tech, but not only around tech. Well, this is this is kind of uh, bringing to mind, you know, these, of course, are issues that come up in therapy, because, again, we end up, I think for me, at least, we do end up talking about the conflict between child and parent often in therapy. And something that I try to do is um, while being mindful not to seem like an extension of mom and dad, I am very weary not to turn the child against mom and dad because you don't want that. Sometimes there's genuine uh, genuine grievances that a child has to air in therapy where they feel hurt, and that's yeah. very important. But you don't want to create a situation where you paint the parents as some kind of horrible, abusive, abusive people. So for me, when it comes to these types of power struggles in therapy, I try really hard to kind of it's not a formula, but I find myself intuitively first finding out, you know, what is the child's perspective? We go all the way deep, fully, fully hear where the child is coming from. Validate that. And then once I feel I've thoroughly understood where the child is coming from, we go together and we try to imagine, you know, why parents might have that opinion, even if you don't agree with it. You know, maybe are there things about your parents or even what you know about your grandparents, like why your parents are taking this stance? Why do you think they might say they're scared for your health? And that way you try to kind of give some value to both sides of the conflict. And I think that's a valuable thing to do in therapy because you want to help the child perspective take for the parents. And conversely, when I talk to families on the phone, I'm trying to help them perspective take for their child. Yeah. Is there anything that you would avoid when you're working with gender, um, gender questioning adolescents? I mean, again, I think I avoid overly political conversations unless the child is leading me there um which maybe we could touch on another time um i avoid being too focused on medical risks at specific parts of therapy sometimes you have to because the child is actually grappling with a decision to make and then it's a good time to kind of slow down and explore what these things mean but I don't know if I have any hard and fast rules, to be honest, because 
I try to feel out each client. And given that this is such a long road, what we see, at least in my experience, there's an arc. Yeah. Initially, kids come out and they're, they have a lot of energy and a lot of big demands. And it's a lot more kind of posturing and stuff they got from the Internet and scripts. And then, you know, when parents kind of set some loving bumper lanes around it, that intensity starts to drop off. And that's where more interesting work can be done in therapy. So I find like if you follow the the path of the child's identity exploration, there are times in therapy for certain kinds of intervention and times where those are not appropriate. What about you? Yeah, I try to avoid politics. I I really do um, think that it can be an obstacle. And I, I try to avoid any sort of obstacles to therapy. That would be, I, I try to avoid the idea that there's one solution in life. Yeah. I, I, I don't buy it. And I, I, I try to kind of, um, I try to fill in the other, the other sides. Like, well, that is one, that's one solution, but there are many for all of us, you know, they're the, you know, and I often make, you know, for example, like I, I couldn't have loved my husband more when we married. Now he's still lovely, but it has made it a little bit over those years. But like you know, the height of of that mm-hmm. love, That's and right. I, I would still argue. And yet, you know, the law of averages with seven billion people, there were probably other people who I could have also loved, and that's okay. That that that's the the extraordinariness of life. One thing I do. Avoid, I don't know if that's the word, but I certainly, I, I, I disavow the exceptionalism of gender. I don't see gender as, oh, one thing and that none of the rules apply to that. I just think it's all part of life. It's all part of the, you know, the, 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 the tapestry of life. One thing I find quite difficult to work with, because we could, we could just talk about the easy stuff quite easily for more <laughs> hours and hours. But one thing I find difficult to work with is the kind of euphoria that can unfold. Now, I've met it in many different ways. There can be euphoria when somebody is first, for example, in the, mid, in the beginning of an eating disorder, it can be very euphoric because you're on it. You're losing weight. Everybody's telling you you're fabulous and you feel the most powerful and in control person in the world almost. And the same for somebody who might be um, inclined towards um, maybe alcohol addiction. At the beginning, it's not alcohol addiction. At the beginning, they're a party animal and they're great fun. And they're having, they're being invited here. Not always, but, you know, just mm-hmm, sweeping generalizations mm-hmm. can kind of sometimes be reflective. And so they're all about it. And they're, they're the person that everybody wants at the party because they're such fun and they're so exciting. And life is a social world. And there's very little, I would argue, therapeutic work that can be done in the euphoria stage. Now, I think what I can do as a therapist is I can build the relationship. But beyond that, I'm not sure. Now, that's where I was very interested in your metaphor of the, oh, okay. uh, the Jenga. Because I'm mm. like, okay, maybe there's more wiggle room than I, I've previously thought. I think, you know, the euphoria is just for me to be there in the background. I'm not sure how much I can do. And there's a gender euphoria where they think, I have the solution to all my problems. All I need is medical transition. Got it. Got it. If only life was so simple. You know, I don't think we'd exist as our jobs would exist. <laughs> I think but, we'd still exist. But yeah, we'd be not as therapists. <laughs> what would we be? I wonder. 
Oh, well, that's another episode, yeah. I guess. Well, well, can I can I address that? I mean, that's yeah. very important. I think um, I think you're 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 right in some ways. What what can happen is a client can be in that euphoric phase. And as a therapist in the back of my mind, maybe I'm seeing the pitfalls here and the inflation of, you know, the fantasy of what this means. And you don't want to just burst their bubble because it's going to destroy the relationship. Totally. But what I try to do in those kinds of situations is I try to join the client behind the positive impulse, right? So let's take your example of the alcoholic who's the life of the party. There's something positive behind that unhealthy behavior, which is wanting to be socially connected. Maybe I'm guessing, right? Wanting to be spontaneous, wanting to indulge in fun and joy and wanting to connect with people and, you know, chat it up with strangers. There might be something about the confidence that they get that's really seductive. And so there's a positive impulse even behind unhealthy behaviors in my view. So if someone comes in with like that kind of gender euphoria, what I might do is I might kind of join them and say, wow, it sounds like this has been a really exciting time for you. So you're kind of reflecting back their experience without saying, yes, I believe you are literally a male. You're saying, wow, you're so excited. And you might say, how does this feel different from what was going on before? Because I'm guessing at some point you were going down the road and then you made a turn, you made a left turn and you're at the left turn right now and you're super excited. What was behind you? What are we talking about? What's the contrast here? And that can be an interesting way to kind of reflect. And this is also a way to help the client perhaps develop some insight about what they're trying to cope with, what they're trying to defend against or avoid or fix. So I do think it can be challenging in those moments to actually offer a different perspective, but you might develop the opportunity for self-reflection. And I, I do think as a word of caution for anybody who is interested in working with this kind of cohort is, is as therapists, it's very important and as parents not to push too hard too soon, you know, not to push at this point, just because sometimes somebody needs to kind of live something to learn from something. And if you try to hassle them and push them forward a little bit, but do you really think you are a man and things like that? Mm. You're, 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 you're kind of, it's, you're kind of hassling them in a way that I I think can be really quite negative. And then therapy can break down if you're not careful. It's kind of like a very fragile place at that point. Yeah. This has been a really interesting conversation. I think we've, we've started down a path that could take us a lot of directions and we've covered today kind of the initial, initial stages of therapy. Perhaps in our next episode, we'll discuss what things look like once we've gotten a little bit further in with a client. Thanks for joining us this week on gender, a wider lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by rhyme rethink identity, medicine, ethics, Rhyme is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more.
If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.